Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. Continue our studies in the Gospel of Mark. We have two more sermons after today. Three years it's taken us to get through Mark's Gospel. So this is the third last sermon. Uh, We'll look at verses 40 through 47. We've seen his death today. We're going to look at his burial. And we'll see the unlikely witnesses of his death and his burial and his resurrection. So uh, Mark 15, we'll begin reading at verse 40 all the way to verse 47. Mark 15, verse 40. There were also women looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the less, and Joseph and Salome, who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee, and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Now when evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate marveled that he was already dead. And summoned the centurion. He, after summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he brought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock, and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. Amen. Let us pray. Oh God, again, we are thankful for the cross work and the, uh, the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, including his dying and being buried. Thank you, O oh God, that he went into that grave for three days, and we're thankful that he saw no corruption, but he was raised on that third day. And thank you that we, your people who are in Christ, who believed upon you, have hope and have encouragement and have great comfort, that though we pass through the valley of the shadow of death, that we pass through death itself, O oh God, we know that one day our bodies shall be raised. Thank you for this promise. Thank you for this encouragement that you give. And we're thankful even in your scriptures that teach us about all that Christ has done. You teach us about discipleship. You teach us about witness. You teach us about how we ought to live as your people. And so we pray, oh God, that we, your people, would hear what we have to uh, hear the things we need to hear this day in your word. As we see all that you've done, as we see your saints whom you call, as we see these unlikely unlikely witnesses in the scriptures here, but thank you that you're a God who does amazing grace and brings amazing grace to the unlikeliest of people. And so we pray, oh God, that we would be encouraged by this. We'd be strengthened by this, oh God. We pray that there are any here today who do not know you. We pray that you'd save them. We pray, oh God, you would give us illumination from on high to better understand what is found in here. Send forth your spirit, we pray. Give us aid from on high, we pray. Thank you for your word that it is God-breathed. And we ask, oh God, that you'd speak to us now in your word and by your spirit. And we pray in all things you'd be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, death seems so final to our human eye, especially when we see perhaps a lifeless body of a loved one. Then perhaps when we have that time of closure, when we lower that loved one or put that loved one in a coffin or a casket and lower them into the grave. We have so many loved ones, so many memories of those loved ones, or perhaps even dreams that are crushed by that awful curse of what death is. Death is something that is not fun. Death is something that we do not wish to go through, but it's one thing everyone is appointed to go through in this world. And certainly for the 11, the scattered 11, and certainly for the other disciples as well, it seemed like their Messiah had failed. 
It seemed like th- all things were lost. It seemed like all hope was gone the day that Jesus died. But we know from the subsequent chapter in chapter 16 that this is not so. But before Jesus is raised, after his death, he must go into the grave for three days. He must be buried for three days. And it's something that we confess in our major creeds, isn't it? We confess that he was crucified, died, and was buried. So certainly his death is important, but his burial is just as important as the death and resurrection as well. Because it teaches us that our Lord Jesus really died. It teaches us that the one who is king really passed. And remember, that's kind of the main point of Mark's gospel, who is Jesus? We see a king, we see a messiah, we see one who is truly God actually die upon that cross. Now, there are some other sub-themes we've been seeing throughout the gospel of Mark. The theme of discipleship, what does it exactly look like? And the theme of witness. Who will bear witness to who he is? Who will tell the truth about who Jesus is? And so those themes come up again for us today when we think of these ladies And when we think of Joseph of Arimathea, so those themes come up again at the time of Jesus's death, burial, and resurrection. And so we saw a king who is silent, a king who takes the place of a killer, a king who suffers, and the son of God who dies, which we saw last week. And today we're going to see his burial, which really continues the humiliation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And really the problem that we see here is really how sad death truly is. Brethren, death is an awful curse, awful thing to observe, and an awful thing to endure. But Christ goes through it. Christ dies and is truly buried. And Christ goes through even much more than physical death. He has the wrath of God poured out upon him in the stead of sinners. So Christ comes to die and bear the brunt of the punishment upon himself. But thankfully, through his death and dying and rising again, he calls unlikely disciples, doesn't he? He calls perhaps people that the world would never think they could be saved. And certainly we see that here again today, because these unlikely disciples will bear witness of his death and burial. And that's the point of what we see in these seven, eight verses for us today. Mark is providing two unlikely witnesses of the death and burial of our Lord. So unlikely witnesses and verses 40 through 47. And so we'll look at this under two headings this morning. First of all, we'll see the unlikely witnesses of the cross and burial, verses 40 and 41, and verse 47. And then secondly, we'll see the unlikely disciple who provides honor to our Lord. So the unlikely witnesses of the cross and burial, and the unlikely disciple who provides honor to our Lord. So let's first look at the unlikely witnesses of the cross and burial. Notice, we see these ladies in verses 40 and 41 observing his death, observing his crucifixion. Again, that is the context here for us. And verses 40 and 41 really do act as a bridge between what we saw last time. And I thought it would have been a bit of a, you know, a downer just to end in verses 40 through 41, right after the centurion says, truly, this man was the son of God. That's a great place to end a sermon. That's a great place to end for, you know, rhetorical purposes, but also to drive the point home. Truly, this man was the son of God. But then I do think verses 40 and 41 do go well with this idea of witness that shall come in these verses and the following verses as well. And notice it's these women who witness our Lord. Verse 40, there were also women looking on from afar. 
Throughout this narrative, especially in Mark's gospel, Jesus has been alone most of the way. His disciples have scattered, his disciples are gone, and Jesus, as he suffers ridicule, as he suffers shame, as he goes through pain and sorrow, his 11 are nowhere to be found. His closest allies are nowhere to be seen. His, uh, one of his disciples, Judas, is the one who handed him over. Jesus goes on his own to die in such a horrible, horrible, terrible way. And so we have some of these disciples, these ladies. And again, they're still looking on from afar. They're still not close, but they're still at least there with him. They're still, but there's still an element of fear involved. They're still seeing all that is taking place at Calvary, but they're still doing it from afar. And what's interesting, too, is these ladies haven't played a prominent role in Mark's gospel until now. And a few of them are mentioned here for us, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James the Less, and of Joseph and Salome. Mary Magdalene is mentioned in all of the resurrection texts and is mentioned in Luke 8, too. And in fact, in verse 9, it says she was one who had seven demons cast out of her by the Lord Jesus. Many infirmities, many trials, many uh, tribulations, and the Lord cast them out of her. So God engaged, Christ engaged in the great salvation of her. But she's at every resurrection. Then we have this lady, another Mary, a lot of Marys in the way in the, the world at that time. Mary, the mother of James, the less, and of Joseph. Now, there are a couple uh, ways to take who this is. One, it could refer to Jesus' mother. Well, why wouldn't they just say Jesus' mother? That's one option. Perhaps, though, it's perhaps the wife of Cleopas, which is what we see in John's gospel. Perhaps it could be the wife of Joseph's sister. And so, and also James and Joseph were common names at that time. So it wouldn't be surprising to have a bunch of Jameses and Josephses and one's family. So perhaps it's not Mary the, Mary, the mother of our Lord, but perhaps Mary the wife of Cleopas that is there. In any case, she was, would have been perhaps well-known to the Roman church. And we have this lady named Salome. Mark's the only one who mentions Salome. And it's probably the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee. That's probably her first name. There's in the other gospels, she's called just the mother of James and John. In this case, she's called Salome. So those three ladies are specifically mentioned here for us. Perhaps more prominent ladies, ones that were better, more well-known. Perhaps they were the ones who helped lead the ladies who served our Lord. In any case, there they were, looking on from afar, uh, these disciples of our Lord. Now, it's not wrong to distinguish between the 11, the inner circle, and the greater amount of disciples that followed our Lord, which would have included women. Doesn't mean they're apostles. Doesn't mean they have the same authority as the men do, but they were still important in the ministry of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Because notice what is said about them. Verse 41 who also followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee. Now that language, if you've been paying attention, I know it's been three years, so it's hard to remember everything I've said for three years, but um, follow me, follow me, follow me. That's the language of discipleship in Mark's gospel, isn't it? In Mark chapter one, in Mark chapter two, when he calls his disciples, he says, follow me. In Mark chapter 8, which is like the key teaching on discipleship in Mark's gospel, he says, those who must follow me must pick up their cross and deny me daily, deny themselves daily. I mean, the life of discipleship is a lesson in self-denial because we love ourselves so much that God in sanctification kiboshes and crushes through various means 
our love of self. Now, thankfully, our love of self is forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. But life of discipleship is just lessons about how terrible we are, how good Christ is, and how much we need him. And so follow me certainly is there as well. And also in Mark 10 as well, he, uh, 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 the, the language of follow me is presented there as well. Um, especially with the rich young ruler. Fall, take up thy cross and follow me. So it's the language of discipleship. So these ladies were believers in the Lord. They were disciples. They followed him. And notice, they ministered to him when he was in Galilee. Drawing our attention back to his earthly ministry, the, 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 first, uh, the, the first wave in chapters 1 through 8, when he did a lot of miracles and spoke wonderful things in Galilee. When things seemed to be going pretty well, the positive time, you could say there was a lot of hope in Galilee, and Jerusalem is a place of death, but Galilee is a place of great hope. And so they served him there. Now, ministry simply means service here. You can have lowercase m and capital M. We're not talking about a specific office here. Yes, there are ministers of the gospel who are appointed, but this does not teach that women can be pastors. But it also teaches us, though, that women certainly still had a place and a role in the church here, and especially in the image or in the service of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. They're going to be witnesses to his death, his burial, and his resurrection. They also ministered to the Lord, and they cared for him in that time, perhaps provided for his needs, perhaps provided a shelter, perhaps provided food, provide the things that he needed in his earthly ministry. So they ministered to the Lord most uh, in many ways. But I think one thing that Ryle points out is how this shows how women are trophies of God's grace. It shows the mercy of God that in Christ there is neither male nor female, according to Galatians chapter 3. That is, you don't need to be a male to be saved. Both male and female are created in the image of God, and thankfully God saves both male and female. doesn't change the fact that there are different roles. doesn't change the fact that there are different uh, uh, callings, especially when it comes to the pastorate and what that means. But it does highlight that women have dignity just as much as men do. Now, probably at that time, a lot of people like to highlight women were treated poorly. And it's true, they probably were treated poorly, but maybe not as bad as, they, as we think, but perhaps not that great or not as good as women perhaps have it today. So when Christianity comes on the scene, it was very revolutionary in a lot of ways. Here is these women who ministered to the Lord. Here are these women who are brought in and part of the people of the Lord Jesus, of, of the church. Ryle says, it is interesting to remark that throughout the New Testament, how often we find the grace of God glorified in women. Mary Magdalene, seven spirits. She perhaps was one who conjured and dabbled in magic. God showed great grace to this woman. Ryle goes on to say, and how much benefit God has been pleased to confer through them on the church and on the world. We never deny that women shouldn't be part of the church. We never deny there isn't a place for women in the church, even if we don't think they should be pastors according to God's word in 2 Timothy chapter 2 uh, and the qualification, sorry, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and 1 Corinthians 14, but there still is a place. It seems meant to teach us that women have an important place in the church of Christ, one that ought to be assigned to them and one they ought to fill. There is a great work that women can do for God's glory without being public teachers. Happy is that congregation in which women know this and act upon it.
And certainly Titus 2 fleshes out what that could look like for women, especially as women care for younger women. But in any case, they cared for the Lord. They cared for him. They ministered to him. They came up with him. Many other women, many other unnamed women in verse 41, came up with him to Jerusalem. Mark chapter 10, along the way, they were with him always. We don't hear about it till now, but they were with him always. And they are with him even now at his death when all the other disciples are gone. Men are supposed to be the mighty ones, right? And the strong ones. We're going to talk about courage when we get to Joseph of Arimathea. But the women are the one, yes, they're still far away, but they're still at least there. They're far away, but they're still near. Where are all the 11? The men who are supposed to be the witnesses. Where are they? A lot of lessons in discipleship that we see in the very piercing lessons in discipleship because discipleship does require courage which we'll talk about in just a minute so they observe his death but also verse 47 they observe his resurrection his burial and mary magdalene verse 47 and mary the mother of joseph observed where he was laid again they're going to be important witnesses of the death burial and resurrection of our lord the disciples are meant to be God's appointed apostles, and they are, in a lot of ways, the first people that God appears to in his resurrection are these ladies. So they play an important role. France says there is nothing they can do but watch. But that watching will prove to be important as the basis of their role as witnesses of what is to follow. So the ladies play an important role. They play, uh, play an important have an important task when it comes to the life or the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord. And many of them are unknown, which leads to my application, how God uses anonymous disciples. I like to draw this one out a lot because we live in a world with Facebook and Insta, whatever, and TikTok or whatever it's called. Everybody just you know, wants to be seen. Everybody has to put their name out there. Everybody wants to be different right? Everybody wants to be perhaps out there. Everybody wants to be seen, but the reality is most of us are not. Our loved ones certainly love us, but even after they pa- after we pass, they're probably going to forget about us. I'm sorry to say it in such a harsh way, but that's the reality of life. We're going to be forgotten in this world. That is the reality of things. And even in the church, sometimes this idea of, of the Facebooks and the TikToks and the Instagrams coming into the world, it comes in, oh, that's in the world, infiltrate the church. We think service in the church is about being seen by everybody. We don't want to do the things that are in the back. We don't want to clean the toilets. We don't want to do those things that nobody sees. We want to be seen serving our Lord. We're all like that. We all love to be noticed by everybody else. And it's something that is difficult for us to, you know, again, discipleship, you know, lifelong lesson in self-denial, even when we do so-called good things. And again, discipleship is such a loaded term in our modern context. What does that mean? Some people think it means everybody needs a mentor. I mean, yeah, that would be nice, but not everybody can have a mentor, and the church needs to provide everything. That would be good. Or perhaps, again, being seen or service. One question we get a lot in our church, because we don't have a lot of ministries, is how do I serve in this church? Here's how you serve in this church, dear brethren. Show up, be at church, interact with the brethren, and as needs arise, be ready to help. The church is not a business. 
that gives you all the things that you need to do. The church is not the babysitter of everything that needs to happen. There's organic ways in which people can develop and care and serve one another. And sometimes people get so caught up in this service thing, families neglected. The basic things in church are neglected. I'm doing this, so I'm not going to come to church the next day. Wrong. If you're not doing the basic things in life, then we're not going to do those other things. If you can do the basic things first, then maybe we'll add some more things. But we kind of get everything topsy-turvy. We get everything mixed up. We get everything, the focus and emphasis seems to shift. I'm not saying we can't help people. I'm not saying that. But service really is caring for one another, being with the church, being with the brethren, being part and parcel of the people of God. God commands us to come and serve and worship him. But perhaps there are other ways. And I think, again, the subtleness in Mark is beautiful. Sometimes discipleship, again, not being seen by others, but perhaps just providing a place to have dinner. In Mark chapter 14, as they prepare at the supper, Jesus has a friend who gives him a room, right? We don't know much about him, but the implication is he's probably a disciple. So sometimes it's just that. Sometimes it is giving food to a brother or sister in need is perhaps what these ladies do. Our Lord is in need to give them a meal or some food. Sometimes it's just showing up and perhaps being with someone until their death, which is what our Lord does or what these ladies do with our Lord. Again, they're from afar, but they're still there. I'll give them much more credit than the men. They're still there. Sometimes it's caring and providing dignity for the body of a loved one. We're going to see that with Joseph of Arimathea, and we're going to talk about the significance of the burial in just a moment, but he does do something marvelous and serve it in a serving way for our Lord. Sometimes, again, it's providing a place to lay the dead. Sometimes it's not always the things where everybody sees. Sometimes it's loving your spouse, isn't it? Isn't that serving our Lord? I'd rather have a strong families and they never serve, serve in the worldly sense of the word than have husbands who are away from their families serving in the church and neglecting what's most important. I'd much rather have strong families than that. That's where service can be. That's where service lies. That's we are honoring God in the daily round, embracing the mundane, embracing the anonymousness of discipleship. We ought to all embrace the anonymousness of discipleship, not to be seen by others. And thankfully, we do so in the embrace of our Lord who loved us and died for us. How God uses anonymous disciples. So that was the unlikely witnesses of his burial, his death and burial. Let's then look secondly at the unlikely disciple who provides a burial, who provides honor to our Lord. Verses 42 through 46. Notice the day of death. Verse 42. Now, when evening had come, so this is Friday, because it wasn't a good Friday, by the way, it was a terrible Friday, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. And so they need to hurry. They need to get them down off that tree as quickly as possible. And so we have the one here, Joseph, uh, the reason he says, explains what it is, is for the Roman audience. The Jews did not want to have anybody hanging on a tree overnight, according to Deuteronomy 21, providing dignity for a body, but also they didn't want to defile the Sabbath or defile the land as well. So they want to get them down. 
the day before the Sabbath. So here comes one, Joseph of Arimathea. Arimathea just describes where he's from. A prominent council member. What this refers to is the Sanhedrin. Joseph of Arimathea was part of the Sanhedrin. Do you know who the Sanhedrin is? The ones who killed our Lord. The ones who engaged in that show trial in Mark 14. The ones who brought charges against him. The implication perhaps is he was not there. But it is clear that he did not, even if he wasn't there, it clearly highlights he did not agree with what they were doing. He was one, even though he was part of that council, that he did not consent with what was going on. There were some, even amongst that hateful Sanhedrin, who loved our Lord. Now, they were fearful. We'll talk about that in just a second. But nonetheless, it highlights not everyone hated him like the Sanhedrin says. There's another one in John's gospel, Nicodemus. Remember, Nicodemus comes in John 3 by night, and he asks them about Jesus, him and Jesus talk about the new birth and what that looks like. Well, he is there with Joseph of Arimathea when they bring him down in John 19. So not everybody who's on a council like the Sanhedrin hated the Lord, our Lord and Savior. But it shows he's an unlikely disciple, right? One who perhaps we thought would be a hateful one is actually one who loves the Lord. And notice it says, who was himself waiting for the kingdom? Now, Matthew's gospel calls him a disciple, but both Mark and Luke use the phrase of waiting for the kingdom. He longed for some fulfillment to come. Now, certainly when we refer to kingdom, what does that mean? Certainly a Jew would have been waiting for a kingdom, but they would have been perhaps doing it according to their Jewish ways. That is perhaps looking for an earthly type of kingdom and an, uh, 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 destruction of Rome. The Messiah was become and free them from their oppression. But I think his actions show that it goes beyond just this Jewish understanding of it. Theologically, Mark has talked about the kingdom in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Believe the gospel is what he says in Mark 14 and 15. I argued way, 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 way back then. And I'm sure I've said it before throughout the, ser uh, throughout this, uh, the series we've gone through, is that the kingdom of God refers to the salvation of souls, doesn't it? First, the redemption that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. When we're looking for the kingdom, we're looking for souls to be saved. We're looking for a spiritual change. We're looking for transformation in hearts by the power of the word and the spirit working with it. The church is the expression of the kingdom of God in this world. And then in Mark 4, he talks about the parables of the kingdom and how, why are all these things occurring? Why are all these things happening? And perhaps in the context is, why is it that some reject? That's when he goes on to give the parable of the sower. And the crowd doesn't understand. The disciples get the explanation. And Jesus only explained to the disciples because they needed explanation of it. But there is one specifically that I think bears application to what we see here. He talks about the mustard seed. And when Mark talks about that mustard seed, he's contrasting between that small little seed and what it grows to. But as things are not always as they seem when it comes to the growth of the kingdom, is it? Things are not always perhaps what we might perceive. And even though they perceive that he has died on that cross, the implication is things are not always as they seem. And he's already explained it to them too in Mark 13 with the doing away of the old and bringing in of the blessed new. And so Jesus himself 
is the fulfillment of the kingdom, who explains what the kingdom is. And so the one who is waiting for the kingdom is a disciple of our Lord. And the language of waiting is also used in Titus 2.13, where all of God's disciples are waiting for the hope to come. If you're a disciple in the Lord Jesus Christ, are you not waiting for the fullness of the kingdom to come in? We participate in part now, but we long for its fullness. We see decay. We feel the decay. We see sadness. We see things that perplex us in this world. Do we not want things to be made right? We have great hope for the kingdom because this world is not our home. So he has great hope for the kingdom and waiting for the kingdom of God. But notice, again, this further highlights, I think, why he's a disciple of our Lord. He took courage. Only Mark mentions he took courage. Boldness or resolution in the face of danger. You can't have courage unless there's danger, right? If there's no danger, it's not really courage. That's why courage is so rare. That's why courage is so hard to find, both in men and in women. And unfortunately, it's still hard to find these days because discipleship does require courage. And what's interesting is Mark throughout his gospel has taught us about fear. The fear the disciples have. Remember that streaker in Mark 15, the guy who runs away in fear. And in Mark 16 as well, the ladies, when they see Jesus risen, they are fearful. Or they hear about the angel, or hear from the angel, don't see it, but they hear the angel, they are fearful. Well, sandwiched in that is Joseph who takes courage. Now, why must he take courage? Well, it could be for fear of the Romans. That's possible. Typically, what happens is when someone, when someone is crucified, they're just left there to decompose. That's it. They typically did not take them down. And the point is they wanted people to think twice. They wanted to see not just the, the brutality in the way they die, but brutality of their body when they died. So they just let it decompose. Some families could come and ask, for the body, which a lot of the times the governors were, uh, according to commentators, governors typically did grant that very thing. So he could be afraid of what Pilate might say. But perhaps, as John says, the more likely fear is the Jews. John 19, he said he feared the Jews. Here is one who's part of the Sanhedrin the people that wanted and have succeeded in killing the Lord by way of Pilate. They're not going to want a Jewish burial. They're not going to want an honorable burial for our Lord. And so his fear is not so much Pilate, but his fear comes from the Jews. He is the outlier with Nicodemus. They're the outliers. Most of the time when it comes to being courageous, it's being the outlier, isn't it? And it's hard to be the outlier because we're all afraid of what the rest of the world says and thinks, aren't we? We're all afraid. Even in a world that talks about being unique, isn't that just a general reference? That lets everybody, if everybody's unique, nobody's unique, right? If everybody does just lives the way they want, are they just not like everybody else doing that very thing? It's hard to be countercultural, isn't it? It's hard to stand out. It's hard to be different. And Christians are called to be that in the face of a world that says otherwise. And so, again, the disciples fled, the streaker flees, the ladies flee, but Joseph takes great courage. He went anyway. Henry says, observe, 
Even among the honorable counselors, there were some. There was one at least that waited for the kingdom of God, whose faith will condemn the unbelief of all the rest. It's not just that he had courage, but here's one who did believe that will further condemn those other ones who did not believe. Those ones who stood and said, let the Christ, the King of Israel, descend now from the cross that we may see and believe. Mocking and ridicule. But here's one who comes and believes. And so he goes. He takes courage. He goes into Pilate. He asks him for the body of Jesus. Again, Deuteronomy 21 is in the backdrop here. Uh, even if someone was hung for the day, no, it wasn't uh, in Deuteronomy 21, 23, they were taken down as not to defile the land, but also to provide dignity for the dead as well. Uh, David does this in 2 Samuel 21 uh, with the bones of, Saul, of Jonathan and Saul. He buries them properly because they were just left to hang there. So he does bury them properly, even after it's just bone. So they still provided for that even in death. And so this is what he wishes. And then we see Pilate's marveling. Verse 44, Pilate marveled that he was already dead and summoned the centurion. And he asked him if he had been dead for some time. And so when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body of Christ. Pilate marvels because crucifixions typically last a long time. But here is Jesus and he is already dead. And his death is further confirmed by the centurion. The centurion. Three times the word centurion in this case is used in the Bible and all three are in Mark. Who's the centurion? Truly, you are the son of God. The one who confesses by faith that he is the son of God is the one who confirms that he has died. The centurion. Again, mentioned in 44 and 45. And what's interesting is perhaps Mark is putting a Jew and Gentile together as disciples of Christ. You see, even though the old is passed away, dear brethren, according to Mark 13 and according to the finished work of Christ, it doesn't mean that Jews can't come in by faith, right? It doesn't mean that Jews can't believe and find mercy in the Lord Jesus Christ, Jew and Gentile, in the mercies of God by faith. So that's perhaps what we see here. Ephesians 2 highlights this for us, breaking down that barrier, Jew and Gentile brought in to as a one people of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And perhaps... One writer says, this all softens the blow of the Jews and Gentiles' wicked act. It's still terrible, but we see both the Jew and the Gentile believe at this time. So Pilate marvels. Pilate is shocked by everything that has occurred. Again, and even that marveling is only included in Mark, because again, it highlights that Jesus was really dead. And why is it important that Jesus is really dead? You have some modern, modern liberal scholars that talk about what's called the swoon theory. Have you guys heard of the swoon theory before? It means that Jesus didn't actually die on that cross. He just fainted. Here's how you'll never forget it. Ladies swoon over a dreamy man. There you go, right? They faint, they swoon. They're, you know, I guess nobody gets that. No ladies ever swooned over a man here before or fainted over a man. I'm sorry about that, but now you'll never forget. That's, I'm so sorry, all you husbands out there, that none of your ladies swooned over you, but that's okay. But that's what it means. So again, you will never forget it now. He fainted. He did not actually die. But notice Pilate, the centurion, and Joseph. All of them confirm he's really actually dead. And if anybody knew how to kill anybody, it was a Roman, right? They performed hundreds of thousands of crucifixions. And in history, 
There is not one record of someone surviving a crucifixion. He was really and actually dead. You know why that's great? I love how our Lord, our God, as he writes his word, anticipates all the people that will come and try to discredit it. Even in Matthew 27, there is that idea there that the Pharisees say, let's just say the disciples took the body, right? He already prepares. He knows all these things are going to come against Christ and is actually dying. Christ actually died. Pilate, the centurion, and Joseph confirm this very thing for us. And so he's granted the body, verse 45. Then verse 46, then he bought fine linen, took him down and wrapped him in the linen. It has to be quick. Sabbath is close. Then you take him down. In a lot of ways, doesn't this whole process kind of exonerate our Lord? He's receiving an honorable burial, something that the Jews didn't want and something the Romans didn't typically do. So he's taken down. John is more detailed with this, but he takes, takes him down. They wrap him in the linen. We saw that linen with the streaker, not the same linen, but the same word for linen in Mark 14. And then we also see the linen later on in his resurrection, how they just see the linen in the empty tomb. So it is a sign that he has been resurrected. So very important. So he's wrapped in this linen. He's placed in the tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. It is secure. It cannot be removed. It cannot be taken away. And this is so much part of our Christian proclamation. Acts 13, 29, all speaking to the church in Galatia says, he was laid in a tomb. Again, if we forget that part, he died, was buried, was crucified, died, and was buried, and shall be raised as well. And the tomb, again, the burial highlights the great honor our Lord receives, even in his death, by an unlikely disciple. But it shows that he was really and actually dead. He really went into the grave. His body really went into the tomb. He was really and actually dead. Jesus, in his human nature, really died upon that cross, and he really was buried for us. And why is it so important that he really was dead? Because if he's not really dead, he's not really resurrected, is he? Which is the next section. If there's no life, death, burial, and resurrection, there is no gospel, is there? Jesus really went into the grave for three days, and God did not allow his Holy One to see corruption. But in him, he raised him from the dead by the power of the spirit, which we'll see next week and the week after. And what this does for us is it gives us great hope, doesn't it? Though we are appointed all once to die, death is not the end for us, isn't it? Death is not the end for his people. Death is not the end for us. I'm not looking forward again to how I'm going to die, but it is not the end. We don't need to fear it when it comes. If our bodies go into the grave for likely longer than three days, we shall rise again. And even we have signs of that, don't we? A signs of our being dead and buried and rising again, right? Baptism. Is baptism not a sign of our dying and being buried and rising again, according to Romans 6? Have we not been united to our Lord when we have died and been buried and rose again in him even now? And one day we shall be actually raised again from the dead by the power of the spirit when Christ comes again. 
You see, we don't need to fear death because Christ, the one who died and went into the tomb for three days, was resurrected from the blessed, from that awful grave into blessed, wonderful life. Ryle says, this is a fact that in, in a dying world, we should always remember. It is appointed unto man once to die. We are all going to one place and we naturally shrink from it. The coffin and the funeral, the worm and corruption are all painful subjects. They chill us, sadden us, and fill our minds with heaviness. It is not in flesh and blood to regard them without solemn feelings. One thing, however, ought to comfort believers, and that is the thought that the grave is the place where they they lay the Lord once lay. As surely as he rose again victorious from the tomb, so surely shall all who believe in him rise gloriously in the day of his appearing. Remembering this, they may look down with calmness into the house appointed for all living. They may recollect that Jesus himself was once there on their behalf and has robbed death of his sting. They may say to themselves, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Even death teaches us what our Lord has done. Perhaps the next time we see a loved one pass and have to lower them to the grave, remember that our Lord, maybe not lowered like that, but he was placed in the tomb for three days and he rose again. And if one passes in the Lord and we put him in a coffin and we lower them down from that spot, one day they shall rise again. And wherever you're lowered, wherever I'm lowered, from there I shall rise again. From there you shall rise again, but only in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you believe the gospel, if you believe on our Savior, if you believe that he did live, die, was buried, and rose again, 1 Corinthians 15 explains that gospel for us in clear detail, that he lived, died, and rose again. He was witness in his resurrection as well, that he truly was, uh, uh, was alive. And if you're an unbeliever here today, you shall die too one day. The question is, will you rise in Christ or will you rise to everlasting death? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe on the one who died and was buried and rose again. Let us pray. Our Christ, we are thankful for all that you've done for us in your perfect life, in your perfect death, and in your burial as well. Thank you that you really died for us and you really went into the grave for us and you really rose again for us. Thank you for this comfort and hope that we have. Thank you even for the sign of what baptism is, of dying and being buried and rising again. Thank you for our union with Christ that we have died and buried and rose again with him already. We long for that fullness to come in. We long for our bodies to be raised again from the dead. We long for this present world to pass away. We long for the present evil age to end and long for the new heavens and new earth. And thankful, O oh God, that you teach us that we can walk this world with great hope, that we have great comfort in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray, O oh God, that we would walk this world, putting our fixing our eyes upon you and not worrying what people think of us, not seeking to serve for our own gain. Please forgive us for we do this so very often. Help us to be happy to serve in the places that you've given to us in the spheres of life that you've placed us. Help us not to murmur or complain about those very things, but recognize your mercy and your grace. Thank you, O God, for all that you do. 
Thank you that you teach us that discipleship is honoring and glorifying you and denying ourselves daily. And we confess, oh God, we love to promote ourselves daily. But we're thankful that even these sins of pride and arrogance and haughtiness are forgiven in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so thank you, oh God, we walk with hope. We walk with encouragement. We walk knowing that we are forgiven in the Lord. If there are any here today who do not know you, oh God, prick them with the reality of death. Teach them, uh, 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 shake their souls with the reality that one day they shall die. And we pray, oh God, that you should pray that you would save their souls and work in them and give them, give them life everlasting. May they believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and find mercy in him that one day they shall rise again. Thank you for this comfort that all who believe shall have eternal life. And we pray, oh God, that you would call forth your elect and cause them to believe. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your cross work. And we pray that you be glorified now in all things. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.